Well, good evening. Just come on in, make yourself comfortable. Let me start with an announcement before we jump into our class, and I'll announce this again at the end because I know some people come in later, but we uh, do not have any Wednesday night programming next week. It's spring break for the schools. It makes it really hard to staff a children's ministry, so we typically take off that Wednesday of spring break, so that's next week. The week following is Holy Week. We don't do any Wednesday night programming Holy Week, but that Thursday... So that would be 16th, 23rd, the 24th. We'll do the communion story in here at 6. And so uh, every year we have more and more people doing that with us, taking communion, talking about tying the whole Bible together with the communion story. So invite your friends. We have plenty of room. And uh, we'll have genuine matzah and genuine grape juice. And uh, bring your own wine. No, don't bring your own wine. I, I do not, <laughs> do not want to get in trouble with Marty on that deal. All right, so... I didn't say it, erase that from the tape. But anyway, we'll do the communion story in here, which is a powerful story, and uh, we'll do that together. So invite your friends. So that's two weeks from tomorrow. So the next two Wednesdays, we won't have any uh, programming in the church. The following Wednesday, we start up and we'll finish the book of Acts. The next part is really different than this part. The next part is going to be like a travelogue of Greece and Turkey. We're going to travel with Luke and Paul from city to city, and see the adventures that they have. There's some really good lessons, but I have great pictures of all these cities. And so it'll be a lot like a travel trip with Paul and Luke. So that's what we're going to do next to finish the book of Acts. But for the next two Wednesdays, no class. Following that, come back strong, bring your friends. It's going to be a really interesting ride with Paul and Luke. All right? Uh, let me say a prayer for us, and we'll jump into our lesson tonight. Lord, thank you for this evening. Grateful that we can gather in this country that you have so richly blessed that we can study your word and pray that you will equip us with greater knowledge and that knowledge will seep into our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that you'll change our very attitudes and our values to be like the Christians who have gone before us. And I pray that you'll give us uh, opportunities to use our hands to go do your work in this world. Father, I thank you for uh, this church. I thank you for this nation. I pray your blessing upon its leaders and your guidance, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are at a turning point in the book of Acts. We're going to study Acts chapter 15. It's literally halfway through the book, but it's also a turning point. If you think about where we've been, you basically begin with a small group of disciples disillusioned at the crucifixion of Christ, then the resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, unbelievable uh, spread of the good news of the gospel, hope for a hopeless world, Church grows, persecution happens, the Christians get scattered. Looks like the authorities have won, but then they realize, oh no, we've just sent 10,000 missionaries out. And so the word begins to spread. But not only among the Jews, now among Gentiles. And so you begin to see the seeds of conflict in the early church. In its very success, meaning the success of the gospel, brings one of the big issues to the head. The second half moves from the Jerusalem church, and the story becomes all about Paul and Luke and all of those who are taking the word out to the whole wide Roman world. It's an unbelievable adventure. But before that can happen, a huge problem in the early church has to be resolved. And so you've seen the growth amongst Jews becoming Christians and the Gentiles, and in Acts chapter 15, it comes to a head. How are Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians going to accept each other? 
And that's our story in Acts chapter 15. Uh, you know the text your questions, and you may have a few uh, during this time. So text your questions in during class. We'll answer as many as we can. Before I get into Acts 15, I want to talk to you a little bit about Jewish views of Gentiles. I want to quote some ancient Jewish texts, some more modern Jewish rabbis, and I want you to get a feel for, because it's going to be hard to understand, the depth and the seriousness of Acts chapter 15 and what's happening in the early church without understanding how Jews were raised to think about non-Jews and Gentiles. I'm not trying to say this is good or bad. It simply is, but it hugely affects your understanding. You can read Acts 15 and think about this as a little tiff. This is not a little tiff. This is one of the great conflicts in the history of the church. This is when everything could have divided, and the story of how it did not is fascinating. So let's take a few minutes, and I want to talk to you about Jewish views toward Gentiles. I've told you a couple of things. First, in Acts chapter 10, a little earlier, you remember Peter had a dream, and so did a Roman centurion in Caesarea Philippi, or Caesarea by the sea, excuse me. Caesarea by the sea, it's kind of a Roman, Greco-Roman city. He's a Gentile, he's a Roman centurion. He gets a dream, God-fearing man, and he says, I want you to get Peter. Peter gets a dream about unclean animals, and he's like, what does this mean? And so he's summoned to go to this uh, Roman centurion, and he knows that God's doing something here, but he doesn't know what. Well, as he walks in, I'm just going to pluck out. You know what happens. Basically, he walks in, shares the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls on them, and God says, look, I've, uh, the gospel is for Gentiles, not just for Jews. And that's an epiphany. I mean, it's, it, it begins our difficulty that ends in chapter 15. But one of the interesting things that Peter says is this. He walks into Cornelius' house, and he said, you are all well aware it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. Now stop and think about that for a minute. First of all, nothing I'm going to tell you in the next few slides is in the Bible, nor is that. That was the law, that was the oral law, that was the rabbinic interpretation of it, but there's nothing in the Old Testament that says you can't go into a Gentile's house. But this is where they had gotten is that they're so unclean. Gentiles are so pagan, so unclean, so immoral that you do not associate with them or they would make you unclean. So at this time, the teaching was indeed, Jews don't even associate with Gentiles. Think about that. Who is so bad that you won't even go into their house or that you wouldn't shake their hand? I mean, there might be a few people in the world, but we don't really have a whole class of people living in our city and said, nah, you're so vile, I wouldn't even walk into your house. Well, that's what he's saying, and that was the attitude of Jews toward Gentiles in that time period, was that Gentiles were unclean and Jews do not associate with Gentiles. I've also told you this, but I read it to you out of a different prayer book. This is from, this is modern, this is from uh, a sitter is a prayer book. So those of you that are Episcopalian know the Book of Common Prayer. This is the Jewish version of that. Been around for a long time. This is the one published by the uh, Rabbinical Council of America. In the morning prayers for Orthodox Jews, I'm not telling you all Jews do this, but this is Orthodox Judaism. This is very observant Judaism. The morning prayers, one of the things in the morning prayers is this. 
There's a whole list of blessings. Blessed are you, Hashem. Hashem in Hebrew means the name. Jews don't say the actual name of God. In fact, no one actually knows how to pronounce the name of God. The name of God in Hebrew is basically Y-H-W-H. We say Yahweh. Uh, and that may be the way it was pronounced. Who knows? Because they didn't pronounce it. Instead, when they see that, they just say the name, uh, Hashem. So what they're saying is, blessed are you, Hashem, our God, the king of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile, that I was not born a Gentile. And that's not ancient, that's modern time. And so I wanted you to understand that there's still this feeling of very much a separation between Jews and Gentiles. I went ahead and gave you some of the footnote because this particular sitter kind of explains it. It says, we thank God, this is explaining to people why you pray this, for the challenge of improving his universe in accordance with his will, male free Jews, because there's another one in here that says, thank you for not making me born a slave. Male free Jews have responsibilities and duties not shared by other people. So you get this sense of this. Uh, you see, remember Peter? Jews don't associate with Gentiles. Here you have this prayer, thank you for not, that I was not born a Gentile. And you begin to see that Jews, this is a, uh, Orthodox Jews, understand that they have a special obligation and that they have a special role or place in God's plan in the universe. This is more than just being God's chosen people because we understand that from the scriptures. This has over time gone beyond that a little bit and you see, you see this idea of Jews have a special uh, duty and responsibility to actually improve the morality of the universe. This is from the writings of uh, a very influential rabbi from 18th century, and uh, it's just a little piece out of what's called Jewish Kabbalah, kind of the mystical side of Judaism. And this little piece I just pulled out because I want you to get a sense again of this idea of mission of the Jews. From the overflow of the illumination on Israel, that means God's blessing on Israel, God's knowledge to Israel, the merit of Israel, of, of obeying the law, from the overflow of that, the darkness of the nations will also be illuminated. The nations are the Gentiles, everybody that's not Jewish. That's just a common, matter of fact, the word Gentiles translated in your Bible literally means the nations or the ethnic people out there. And so the point is, is that there is a special relationship with God and Jews are uh, held to this higher standard and higher blessing and as God illuminates them, the overflow of that also falls upon the Gentiles. So there's this sense of Jews having an obligation to sort of lift the whole world and bring the Gentiles along with them. And I don't mean this in so much a negative way as I'm trying to get you to see that throughout a long period of history, Jews have had this kind of an attitude toward Gentiles. This particular, this comes from the oral law. This was undoubtedly circulated in the time of Jesus. This oral law, according to Jews, the Mishnah, is the oral tradition that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, that the Torah was the written laws, the 613 laws, but God also gave him these oral laws. This is where Jesus and the Pharisees clashed big time, is all these oral laws and what they had done with them. 
This Mishnah is a compilation of that oral law. It was developed over the centuries through the time of Jesus, and it was written down a little after the time of Jesus. And I know you're going to say, Terry, if it was an oral law, why did they write it down? Because it, it went from rabbi to rabbi memorizing this, and it is not small, and it was discussed, but they, they were under such persecution in the first couple centuries you remember the rebellion against Rome in 70 AD? There was another rebellion against Rome by the Jews in 132 AD, and they were brutally suppressed, and a lot of rabbis were being killed. They thought we could literally lose our oral tradition, and so they wrote it down, what's called the Mishnah. And so this is from that oral tradition. Again, this is not in the Bible, but this is what Jews believed, and it, you will still see it today. This is still widely thought of today. All Israel has a share in the world to come. All Israel has a share in the world to come. What that means is that all Jews go to heaven. I mean, effectively. Now, it's followed. I just didn't read the whole thing to you, but the rest of it starts telling you some exceptions, some Jews that aren't going to heaven. But big picture, okay, a couple of, you know, really uh, bad characters, etc. But in general, this idea is there's this special relationship and that all of Israel, at least, goes to heaven. There's a really interesting story that goes along with this. It's part of Jewish tradition that explains this idea. It says this, think of Jews and Gentiles in this way. A doctor had two patients, and the first patient came to see him, and he had a very serious disease. But the doctor realized that there was hope for this patient, and that if this patient ate the right diet, and did the right exercise and took care of himself in the right way that he would recover. And so the doctor gave him a very detailed diet and prescription of how he should act and how much he should sleep and what he should eat and what he should not eat and gave it to him and said, you need to go follow this very closely and you will get well. His second patient came in and he also was very, very sick. And the doctor realized that his disease was incurable. And so he told that patient, you should go eat whatever you wish. You should go do whatever you wish, thinking that he should make the remaining days of his life before he died as pleasant as they could be. Some souls are sicker than others, and some souls are not quite as pristine, and so they may eat whatever they wish. And this was a way of understanding the difference between Jews following all the dietary laws, etc., and Gentiles not having the dietary laws. And so this was a way to explain that Jewish souls have a share in the world to come, and they need to be cured, purified, whatever, made right through this prescription, this strict regimen of the law of Moses. Gentile souls, not so pristine, and consequently, don't have that prescription. So you begin to see this really differentiation, not just a differentiation in mission, meaning Jews are here to show the world the way that God wants you to live and the overflow of that illumination would shine on the Gentiles, not just a differentiation in mission, but a differentiation in destiny and even a differentiation in the soul. Orthodox Jewish teaching is that Jewish souls are different than non-Jewish souls. 
Now, I'll tell you in just a second about, well, what about Gentiles? Can Gentiles also go to heaven? I'll tell you that story in just a second. But before we get there, they also believe that there's just a qualitative difference, that Jews are created differently than Gentiles, not just in their relationship, not just in their mission, not just in their destiny, but in their very essence, that they are different. I tell, I'm telling you all this because hopefully it's interesting to you. It's very interesting to read Jewish literature throughout time and understand it. But the reason I'm telling you this is so that you understand how deeply held the differences were. Because we as Americans don't really think like this. We might think, oh, those people don't look like us or those people come from a different place than we are. We've had prejudice in our history and we have prejudice today at times. This goes beyond that. And I need you to understand how, how much it goes beyond that. So even the qualitative difference of the soul as well as their destiny. So that's kind of how Jews thought about Gentiles. Well, is there any hope for Gentiles? In fact, there is. There is a thing called, uh, this is in the Talmud. And the Talmud is, remember that oral law, the Mishnah? then the rabbis would comment on the oral law and argue about it, and that turns into a massive volume, and that's called the Talmud. This is not in the Bible. This is part of that oral tradition and reasoning and uh, the literature of the Jews throughout the centuries. But according to the Talmud, because we are all children of Moses, we're not all children of Abraham, right? That's Jews. But we're all children of Noah after the flood. This is all mankind. And they looked in the scriptures in Genesis and said, you know what? The Jews were given 613 commandments through Moses in the Torah, this really strict prescription for them. But even the Gentiles were given seven commandments. All mankind needs to abide by the Noahide covenant or the Noahide laws. And they look in, and this comes from Genesis, and here is how they distilled it, that all human beings are responsible to establish courts of justice, to refrain from blasphemy of God, to refrain from worshiping idols, to refrain from sexual immorality, from murder, from robbery, and not eating meat with blood in it. It was a practice in ancient times, actually not so ancient, uh, to strangle animals. They would actually eat the meat without draining the blood out of it. Long story, but short version is, uh, Jewish thinking is that the life is in the blood and that that was profane. And so you'll see these basically derived from Genesis. But they thought that all Gentiles, all humanity had to at least do these seven things and that there could be a place in the world to come for Gentiles who were righteous among the Gentiles. That means you at least kept these seven. And so there was some place for you, even with the qualitative difference in the souls and the mission and the choosing, that it wasn't that all Gentiles are excluded from heaven. There is a chance for Gentiles, particularly as the Jews lead the way and bring them along, but this is what Gentiles were supposed to to do. Does that make sense? That kind of sets up a little bit because I don't think you can understand what's happening in Jesus' time without understanding how Jews understood who they were and their relationship to Gentiles. So let me pause and see if you have any questions because this is going to make Acts 15 make a lot more sense. Gentiles have often persecuted Jews. Jews have been persecuted people through time by many different groups. 
Have they ever persecuted others, Gentiles or other groups? Uh, have Jews ever persecuted Gentiles or other groups? Jews have been persecuted throughout history. That's certainly true. Uh, no question about it that Jews at various times throughout history have been persecuted, uh, treated horribly, even in our recent memory, let alone uh, significantly in history. The question is, have Jews ever persecuted others? Yes, I'll give you the safe answer, then I'll get onto the politically not so safe ground. All right, so yes, as a matter of history, they most certainly persecuted Christians. You've seen that early on. Now, I'm not going to talk about for 2,000 years, and I'm not going to talk about did Christians persecute Jews, which should never have happened. That's not a Christ teaching by any means, but it did in history. Who persecuted who more? Different question. But the point is, did Jews persecute Christians? Yeah, you've seen it in the book of Acts. They killed Stephen, scattered the uh, disciples. Uh, remember the apostle Paul? He was dragging people out and throwing them in prison, having people killed for blasphemy. Yes, there was extensive persecution of Christians by Jews during a certain time period in history. And then the Romans took over. There are people today uh, who think that, yes, Jews have indeed persecuted other people throughout their history. And this is a matter of opinion, but I'll give you the one that's probably the most volatile today. There are people today who think that the Jews, the Jewish nation, is persecuting the Palestinian people today. And if you look at a lot of maps, you'll see the West Bank listed as occupied territory. Meaning, and again, this is a very politically sensitive, it depends on your point of view, I'm just answering the question to tell you that some people think that Jewish people are still persecuting others today. But from our point of view, the book of Acts, I mean, there's no question about this in my mind, is that yes, Jews in that time did persecute Christians. Now, the Jews today may say they should not have done that, just like I'm going to tell you that Christians, I can't have conscience how Christians could have, have persecuted Jews or anyone. That's just not Christ-like, but it did indeed happen. So yes, there have been some, at least some cases of that in the past. Going back to their ideas about um, salvation and the Noahide covenant for the non-Jew, do Jews today feel the same way about non-Jews? Yeah, when you talk about Jews today, this is going to be a complicated answer because it's not a uniform body. So I'm going to simplify this a little bit, and I'll tell you there are, boy, this is really simplifying it, but there are three major branches of Judaism. You have, uh, and I'm going to, I'm trying not to make value judgments, but I'm just trying to describe this to you. The most common, particularly in America, group of Jews would be called Reform Jews. Reform Jews don't follow the 613 commandments. They understand their religion in a different way than that. From your and my perspective, it would not match up well with what we understood of uh, Jews necessarily at Jesus' time or following the law of Moses. But they're Reformed Jewish congregations. We would label it, and again, I'm not trying to put any charge in this label. We would label that as a much more liberal understanding. There are Reformed Jews that don't believe in God. And reform rabbis that don't believe in God. So it's a different way of understanding Judaism. In between, and again, I'm really simplifying this, but there's conservative Judaism. Conservative Jewish congregations, groups, will be more observant than reform and generally hold to a more conservative understanding of the Jewish faith. 
And then there's the whole world of Orthodox Judaism, which is what you and I would label observant Judaism. There are many different groups inside each one of these, but those are three broad groups. Orthodox Jews are more like what you and I would think of, oh, they are attempting to follow the commandments in the Torah, in the Law of Moses. They're the ones when you see the pictures that are wearing a different kind of garb. Not, not all Orthodox Jews wear a different kind of garb, but that's kind of the image that we might have. So asking that question of how do they believe, it depends on what kind of Jews. What I'm telling you is Orthodox Judaism. This is, and this is a strain that runs all the way from the Pharisees, and I don't mean that word with such a negative connotation, but the Hasids, the pious Jews of that era, before the time of Jesus, run through the Pharisees, all the way up to the Hasidic movements today. There's this chain of Orthodox Judaism throughout the centuries. What I'm describing to you is more that. It'd be very difficult to tell you all the different beliefs that are held by all the different uh, groups of Jews. That's a good question, okay? All right, having said that, I want to dive into this story and just tell you the story of what happens in Acts chapter 15. So here's what's been going on. We just got back from a little missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas take off. They go into Turkey. They go through some cities, and you see this interesting pattern. They go into a city. They begin to preach to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. People began to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, raised from the dead, gives us hope of reconciliation with God. They be baptized, and they begin to rejoice. But in the midst of that success, some feel like their power is threatened. Some of the Jews uh, feel like this is heresy, and so they stir up people. Paul and Barnabas usually get beaten up, sometimes stoned and uh, left for dead, and run out of town. And so you see this pattern. But what happened is all these churches start up, and many of them have Gentiles. Some of them have Jewish Christians. In other words, they're all Christians. Some used to be Jews. Many used to be Gentiles. So they come back to Antioch up in Syria, and they're just rejoicing like crazy, like, oh, my goodness, look what God's doing through this. Well, the guys in Jerusalem hear about it, the Jewish Christians there, and they say, wait a minute, this is not what we had in mind. Don't you understand these are Gentiles? Do you understand now how they're thinking about this? And so that's how our story starts in Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch. That's 250 miles. This is a long journey. This is, if you're hoofing it, maybe two weeks, maybe two weeks. So they go from Jerusalem, go all the way up to Antioch in Syria because they've heard what's going on. And here's what they came to say. And they were teaching them, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This, for what are they saying? They're saying, you Gentiles, you can't be saved. You are too unclean. You've got to be circumcised, which means I will take on the covenant of Moses with God and obey all those commandments, and then you can become a Christian. So that's what they're teaching. Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So you see the essence of the conflict. You have Jewish Christians who say, you don't, I don't think you guys understand this. These Gentiles are so far away. Maybe if you become a Jew and clean your act up in a major way, then you can become a Christian. But you can't just become a Christian. 
And Paul and Barnabas said, no, you don't understand the idea of you are saved by grace through faith. That's what Paul is going to write in Ephesians, not yet, but soon. And he understands that we're saved by grace, not by observing the law of Moses. And it brings them into sharp dispute with each other. So they said, I'll tell you what, the best way to handle this, and this is healthy, let's just send them to Jerusalem. Let's talk to the apostles who were with Jesus, and let's talk to the elders of the church there, and let's see if we can't resolve this. So they do. They take off, probably takes them about a month. So they leave uh, Antioch, and they go through Samaria, and they go through Syria, and they're visiting all these new congregations of Gentiles on their way, telling them all the wonderful things God did up in Turkey on the places that they went. And they finally come to uh, Jerusalem, and they meet with, uh, it says here in verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. If you remember our last lesson, they didn't say all that we have done. They said all that God did with us. Look what God did through us. And so the glory goes to God, and they're telling them that. And so they're, they're really uh, excited. But as they're talking about it in front of the group, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Now, these are believers. They are Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, our Savior, baptized, follow him. They used to be Pharisees. Pharisees were the most devout, the most strict sect of the Jews. Here's a curious thing. Paul was raised a Pharisee. So it's interesting that Paul was raised in that strictest sect, most observant sect of the Jews. Think of them as the ultra-Orthodox Jews of their time. But he does not agree with this. And you can see then the debate that comes about. But these Jewish Christians are making the claim that you must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. This isn't so much, and you're going to see this play out, about moral issues. Nobody's disagreeing. Paul's not going to disagree that Gentiles can't keep doing sexually immoral things. And I mean, nobody's disagreeing about that because Jesus was pretty clear about that. What they're disagreeing about is this idea of purity, of ritual purity. Circumcision said, I'll take on the yoke or the burden of acting exactly the way God wants me to act. And that meant kosher food. I'll eat certain things, I won't eat certain things. It meant ritual purity. I will go be baptized, basically. I'll go into the mikvah, the little ritual bath. I'll cleanse myself. All of the purity requirements, because Jews in that time understood their differentness, their set-apartness, not just as a moral thing, but also as a purity thing. In other words, they were purified. Jews were different than Gentiles, not just in their morality. They were different in their conduct. Don't go eat in the house of a Gentile. And so there were all these purity rules. And that's where they really came into a great uh, issue. So the, they get up and they said, wait a minute, you've got to become a Jew before you can be a Christian. You can see where, at this point, this starts to look like an absolutely insurmountable problem. Because the Gentiles aren't all going to go be circumcised. I mean, it wasn't covered on their insurance. It was an elective procedure. So they're not going to go be circumcised. They're not going to follow. They're not going to be able to follow the law of Moses any better. How do you know when you're good enough then to become a Christian? All right? 
So you see the, the setting for this. So then the apostles and elders met to consider this question. So you have the apostles of whom Peter is the head, and you have the elders of whom James, I'll tell you about James here in just a minute, of whom James is the head. They met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now, you know who Peter is. I'm going to explain to you who these people are as we go through it, but you know who Peter is. And in fact, this is the last time you're going to see Peter in the book of Acts. This is about 51 AD when this is happening. So we're maybe 18 years after the resurrection. So this is 51 AD. Peter is going to die in Rome by being crucified upside down at his own request by Nero, likely in the year 68. So I went ahead and put a picture, a great, one of the great paintings of Peter being crucified upside down as a tribute to Peter because this is the last time you're going you're gonna to see Peter in the book of Acts because it's going to take a different course now and you're going to see the gospel kind of go in a different place. But basically, Peter is the leader of the apostles. What he's going to talk about is, and it's really interesting, he's going to give them his experience, his firsthand experience of what God did. So here's, here's what Peter says. He says, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. This is Acts chapter 10. This is Cornelius. He said, I already told you guys about that. Freaked me out too. But they got the Holy Spirit. God apparently said they can be saved too. He said, you have heard that from me. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So now he's talking about, I'm just going to tell you my experience of what God did here. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? What's he saying? He's saying, look, you're going to tell them to follow the law of Moses. Guys, none of us have followed all 613 of those rules. There were 248 positive laws and 365 negative prohibitions, 613 laws, plus all the oral stuff. And he's saying, look, even if you were right, how would you ever know when they were good enough? Because neither are we. He said, we don't meet all the, all the requirements to be holy before God either. He says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. This is a profound statement based on his experience and his understanding of what God is doing, that we are saved by God's grace not by following these laws. And which, but here's something that you need to understand. Sometimes we read into that. Well, if you're saved by grace, then your behavior doesn't matter. No one in this story is going to say that the Gentiles can keep behaving the way that they are behaving. What they are saying is that you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by cleaning up your act to be good enough first. But no one is going to say that they can continue to act the way they are. And you'll see when it gets resolved. But he makes a strong statement about grace, that you're saved by grace through faith. Well, when he finishes speaking, and that's a strong thing to say from someone who was with Jesus, the apostles, it carries a lot of authority with it. Paul and Barnabas get up and they begin to say, look, let me tell you what we've seen. He says, I'll tell you what God did through us. It's not us, but he seemed to pour out his Holy Spirit on people. 
They believe, they were baptized, their hearts are changed, the faith is transforming them. So they give a testimony about what God appears to be doing. And when they finished, James spoke up. Now I need to tell you who James is. This is an icon of James from the Eastern Orthodox Church. I don't know if he actually looked like that, but I think it's a cool icon. Uh, basically, James, is his nickname was James the Just. Very, very wise man. Very respected, even by the Jews that weren't Christians. James was the brother of Jesus. This is the same James who didn't even believe in Jesus during his ministry, but came to faith, and not only came to faith, came to be the leading elder uh, because of his faith, because of his prayer, because of uh, uh, his justice, his commitment to Jesus. He became the leading elder. That's this James. He's the one who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. And you can see him pouring out this idea of faith and works. In other words, we trust in God and we act it out. And so this James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, that's his real name. He was born Shimon, Simon. And uh, Peter was his nickname, which means Rocky. Uh, he was a boxer before he was a, uh, a fisherman. He says, Simon has described to us how God showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. In other words, what he's saying is that God has showed us by what he's doing. Like it or not, guys, God has showed us that he is taking Gentiles, not all of them, not all believe, but he's bringing some Gentiles in to the group. He said, the words of the prophet are in agreement with this. Now, this is interesting. James is not just going to refer to what God has done. He's going to say, and you know what? And there's a great model in this for us. He's going to say, does this fit the scriptures? In other words, God has already revealed the scriptures to us. Can we reconcile this? And he said, as a matter of fact, we very clearly can reconcile it. He's not going to quote the promise to Abraham, but I'll tell you, remember, Abraham, I will make... I'll bless all the nations of the earth through you. And this is coming true. He's going to quote Amos, and look what he says. He said, it's written in the prophets. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Now we're talking about after the exile. In other words, I'm going to restore David on the throne, or David's descendant on the throne. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name says the Lord, who have done these things. In other words, he says, listen, guys, we all know this. We didn't understand it, but what he said was, I'm going to rebuild the house of David, meaning the people of God, Jews, and there are going to be Gentiles in it. He said, we never really understood that, but guys, I think we're seeing that prophecy played out. So James is confirming what God is doing by saying, does this fit what God said he would do? And he does. And that's a powerful idea because today you hear a lot of claims, especially claims from experience. Well, God told me this, or God showed me that, or God said, no, you don't really have to do this, or God said, you really do have to do that. All of these things, this is a great model for us. Let's be attentive to what the Spirit is doing. But the Spirit of God does not act in contrary to what God has already said. And so that's what Peter and James are doing. He's saying, look, the Scripture testifies to this. We can understand what God was saying through all these things. And he goes on, and he says, It is my judgment, therefore. You see, he is the real leader here, but watch how wisely he's bringing people together. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. 
Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Because Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is brilliant. This is very interesting what, what is happening here. So what he's saying is, is, guys, there's no question about this. God is going to bring the Gentiles in. Paul's later going to write in the book of Romans, and I'll tell you when, when we're on the journey, uh, in the next session, where, when he's going to write the book of Romans and what he's going to say to them. But he's basically going to say, look, God took his tree, the Jews, and some believed and some did not, and he cut off some of the branches. And then he took the Gentiles who believed, and he grafted it in. And he said he has made a new tree, he's made a new people of all those who by faith in Jesus Christ are his people. That's what James is saying, that's what Paul's going to say, that's what all the New Testament is going to say. He said, this is what God is doing, guys. But he says, but you know, I understand how hard this is for you, and you do too, I hope now, how very difficult this is to accept for them. He said, but you know what? Moses has been preached all around the world, and that's true. You go anywhere in the Roman world, because of what happened to the Jews 600 years before, they were scattered all through the place. There were little Jewish settlements everywhere. People understood, oh, what's that strange God these Jews worship? They're really different. They don't even associate with us, and they're really clean, and they have all these rules, and they're really strict. They must really believe in their God, wonder what their God's all about. And the Gentiles knew. They knew about God, they knew about Moses, they didn't believe, but they thought, that's who you believe. They even knew that, hey, all mankind, if you want to be a Gentile and you want to follow this God, here's these seven Noahide rules that you need to do. You need to refrain from sexual immorality and meet strangled animals, this is starting to sound familiar, and idolatry. And so he said, this is what you need to do. What James is saying is, look, this is not going to be news to the Gentiles. They already know this much about what we believe. That's pretty well known throughout the world. He said, so my judgment is that we should not stand in the way of what God is doing, but I know this is difficult for you. Let's tell them to follow the Noahide covenant. You see what he's doing? He's, he's going to basically try to preserve the unity. And so that's what they do. They decide this is the right thing. And so our story ends with this letter being written to, and given to Paul and uh, Barnabas to take back to Syria and to spread amongst the Gentile congregations that this is going to be the position of this young church. It says, the apostles and elders, your brothers. Does that sound like the way Jews thought of Gentiles? <laughs> no, not likely. Not like your brothers, not your brother-in-law, not your black sheep uncle, you know? It's like, but listen to what they're saying. They, by faith, because James is, is a devout man too. They're overcoming that prejudice by accepting what God has done. He says, your brothers to the Gentile believers in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, those are the areas that Paul and Barnabas have gone to. Greetings. We have heard that some people went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said, meaning you've got to be a Jew to be a Christian. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they sent some people from the church in Jerusalem to go with them and said, these are our good friends Paul and Barnabas. What they teach is true. 
Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas, a couple of trusted men there, to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing to you. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, blood, uh, murder, from the meat, most understand that to be murder, from meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Very interesting. I mean, this is probably one of the most brilliant things that can be done, and I want to draw a couple of lessons out of this for us. You notice those four things are four of the seven, uh, and they're really the ones most associated with the Gentiles. When you talk about Jews and they said, what's wrong with Gentiles? Number one, they don't follow any of the purity or kosher laws, and that's not there. It's like, nope, and they're not going to have to. We couldn't, and neither are they. It's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that his grace is poured out on us. But on the moral side, absolutely. And so you take those requirements out of that and you say, no idolatry, no, uh, and this one, I'm gonna talk about the meat sacrifice to idols in just a second. Uh, murder and blood, animals in it. In other words, they're recalling this. And so what are the Jews thinking? They're like, well, I don't know if I agree with this, but you know what, it, has, it is true that God has always said that these Noahide laws applied to everyone and that even the Gentiles could be righteous through this. So you see how it's very much trying to bring the church together without compromising the truth. One of the things I want you to notice about this is that this resolution builds on their commonality. The Gentiles know about the Noahide covenant and the Jews know about it and says, look, we can at least all agree on that. I mean, again, they're not gonna compromise on the morality. Jesus taught about that, and every, all Christians are going to follow Jesus Christ and obey his commandments. But when it comes to the ritual purity and the kosher laws and all, no. He says, look, but we all agree on this. Let's not eat meat sacrificed to idols and not eat animals with blood in it. We'll go that far. So they build on commonality. You're going to see Paul later, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He's going to write this letter later. Paul does not agree with this. Paul does not think that there's anything wrong with eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol. What would happen in those days uh, is that at the pagan temples, people would bring an animal to be sacrificed, they would cut it up, they'd take part of it and burn it on the altar, and then the priests would keep the rest. I mean, that's just normal, it happened with the Jews too. What would they do? Well, they'd eat some of it, but then they'd sell the rest. It's how they financed the temple. They'd sell it in the meat market and say, hey, here's some fresh uh, tenderloin, right? It came straight from the altar of Zeus. Jews wouldn't touch that stuff with a 10-foot pole because they said that was sacrificed to an idol. It's impure. It's unclean. Paul's going to say, man, that's that whole ritual purity thing. What's up with that? There's no food. In 1 Corinthians 8, he's going to go, we all know that idols aren't real. We know that there's nothing wrong with that tenderloin. In fact, I'll grill it up right now. It's really good. I got this great rub you put on it. But anyway, he says there's nothing wrong with meat sacrificed to idols. But here it is as something to refrain from. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 is going to say this. He says, you and I both know that there's nothing wrong with this. But you know what? We've got brothers out there, Jewish Christians, who are really having a hard time with this. And you know what? I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to eat meat sacrificed to idols, even though I think there's nothing wrong with it, because I'm not going to cause 
a division with those Jewish Christians. Do you understand? This isn't true for all time, but in that time period, he says, you know what? I understand how hard they are, how hard a time they're having with this. They're not right about this, but I tell you what, it's not always about being right. Why don't we voluntarily give up something that's okay to do because we love our Jewish Christian brothers more than we love our tenderloin that came from the altar of Zeus. Does this make sense? Paul doesn't agree with this, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 is going to say, I'll tell you what, if, if, it, if this is what it takes, I won't even eat meat at all. I'll do whatever it takes for, the, for this to be, so we can come to unity. Does that make sense? It's a powerful Christian principle, and you see it at play here. What they're basically saying is, look, Meat sacrificed to idols doesn't matter, but, but guys, we want you to stop, not do that. You need to at least respect how hard this is for your Christian brother. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That principle plays itself out today as well. And I wanted you to see that even though they don't agree that this is necessary, they're saying, you know what, we'll voluntarily give up that freedom because you are more important than that freedom. Powerful. Notice how this is going to preserve the church. This is going to preserve the church. It's not going to be preserved by saying, you're right, they're wrong. Over time, they come to that knowledge. Over time, even the most hardened Jewish Christians begin to realize, not for a while, that you know what? It really is by grace and, and through the faith in Jesus Christ that we're saved. You know what? We've come to understand and our faith has matured and meat sacrificed to idols is not a big deal. But in the beginning, they preserved their unity and they solved this by voluntarily giving up something they don't have to give up. That's always been the motif in the church. It is a powerful lesson. It works not just on a church-wide basis. It works in your marriage. It works in your work relationships. I'm not saying to you that that means, well, I guess I'll do whatever somebody else wants. I don't want you to take this to an extreme. I want you to know that sometimes when people are really sincerely struggling with something, we, our principle is, you know what? What can I do to help you? And if that means, in this case, I don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, or maybe in another case is, I don't drink alcohol around you, or maybe in another case is, I respect the fact that you don't see R-rated movie. I mean, what, if you fill in the blank, whatever it is that sincerely is causing a struggle, you matter more to me than doing this. That, that will make a huge difference in your marriages, in your friendships, in your work relationships, in our church, in everything. This model is hugely important. This saved the early church. This, the church likely historically should have split over this, but they don't split over this, and this is why. Does that make sense? The last thing, and then we'll take a couple questions, is notice how they found a way to preserve unity without compromising the truth of Scripture. They're not saying the scripture says you can't do these things. They're saying, we're telling you we don't think you should do these things voluntarily. So they preserve the truth of scripture, but they hold unity to be a high enough value that perhaps we can all give up. Because the Jewish Christians are giving up things too. They're saying, we wanted way more than this. We need these guys to do all kinds of stuff. And he goes, no. That's just not a yoke that Jesus puts on us. And the Gentiles might be saying, oh, wait a minute. Jesus didn't say we couldn't do it. Yeah, I know that. But I'd like for you to voluntarily give that up. You see how they preserve their unity? By it not always being about them. Question? 
So did the Jewish Christians at this time continue to practice dietary uh, regulations and circumcise their children and celebrate the Passover and other things that they didn't require the Gentile Jews or the Gentile Christians to do? Yeah, great question. And I'm actually going to ask a second question. Number one, did all the Jews agree with this? No. Paul's going to have some choice words for some of them that were still out teaching this. But by and large, the church does not split over this. It, it's hugely powerful what happens here. Second question, do those Jewish Christians continue to observe it? Not all, but many, because that's the way they grew up. And today, Messianic Jews, meaning people who grew up ethnically Jewish, doing Jewish things, I'm not talking about Orthodox, but just observing, lighting Sabbath candles, doing the Passover, not observing 613 rules, but they grew up ethnically Jewish. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They are Christians, but their background is Jewish. Many of them still do some of the traditions, a Passover Seder, but they don't think of it the same way. Messianic Jews do not think that observing those laws makes them right with God. It is part of their tradition. There's strong evidence that Paul continued to, for, for this reason, he continued to eat kosher. Paul continued to observe the practices, not because he thought they saved him, but because when he walked into a synagogue in a new town, he did not want anything to hinder his message. He did not want them to say, oh yeah, well you're telling about this Jesus, but I also know you're eating pork over there too, so why should I listen to you? Paul said, you know what? I'm taking that off the table. I will voluntarily follow these rules because I don't want anything to get in the way of the rules. So many did, and evidence is pretty strong that Paul continued to, not because he thought it saved him, but because he wanted to enhance the word of God. Powerful message. You notice how much giving up of things voluntarily for the sake of Christ happens here? Hugely powerful. Good question. Are you sure it isn't because he stayed in hotels in Israel? Because he stayed in hotels in Israel. Yes, those of you that just came back from Israel realize that the Orthodox Jewish population in Israel is very small, meaning Jews that follow the dietary rules, very small percentage. But you are hard-pressed to find a hotel that won't do it out of fear for that. You cannot, you cannot get good chocolate at dinner over there because you just can't mix it. But yes, he may have just stayed in hotels in Israel and they kept kosher. Good question. So today we have Messianic Jewish congregations. There's one in Oklahoma City in our old church building. Yes. Are those people descendant from Jews that became Christians in Jesus' time? In other words, was there a split that has perpetuated itself? Boy, this, now you're talking, think about what you're asking here. Are they in some way related to Jews who became Christian in Jesus' time? Maybe. It's 2,000 years. Who knows? But more likely, they are people who they may have grown up in a family that was ethnically Jewish and did Jewish practices, but their parents may have been Christians, and so they also are Christians. Some of them may have had parents who were Reformed Jews, and they came to accept Christ and become Christians. So their stories are very mixed. But historically speaking, if I understand what you're saying, there's no strong thread because there's no differentiation in the church. Pretty quickly, you see Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians just merging together. They don't stay as separate strands forever. So hard, hard to know. 
Um, is this the passage that the Catholics use to um, keep them from eating meat on Fridays? Is this the passage? I, I I'm trying to remember where that comes. I don't think it comes from this, no. But there's so many interesting Catholic traditions that are later, by the way, than you think they are, that, that didn't start originally, like the celibacy of priests and uh, the eating meat on Friday. Christmas, for heaven's sakes, doesn't get started till the 4th century A.D. So I don't actually know, uh, not having been raised Catholic, exactly where that one comes from, but I don't think that it, it comes from, from this, from uh, the Jewish dietary requirements. Well, let me just sum this up and then just tell you briefly what we're going to do next. This is a powerful historic event because it should have split the church, and it didn't. And what's really powerful and so applicable to us today, and I don't mean just in the church, I want to say this again, in your marriage and everything is, look at how they did this. They adhered to the truth, but they said, you know what? We're actually, this is true, I'll back up a step. I'll voluntarily give up some things that I could do. As Paul is going to say again in 1 Corinthians, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything builds up. And so the principle for Christians is, even though in Christ we don't have to follow all 613 rules and dietary laws, but you know what? It's not really about that. It's really more about what is it that I can do that will help them come to know this Savior that I have met. And so you see Christians going the extra mile. Think the Sermon on the Mount. I don't like to tie everything back there, but think the Sermon on the Mount. If someone asks you to go a mile, go two miles. If someone wants your cloak, give them your coat as well. Now, what is Jesus saying? He said, it's not about your rights. It's about caring about others. And this is what you're seeing played out. The teaching of Jesus and the wisdom of the early church and the unity. And so in unity in your relationships, unity with each other, we are not going to compromise the truth. What we are going to do is give up some things that we could do because we realize it's really not about our freedoms. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ. Think about that. We're going to turn the page now in three weeks. We'll be off for two in the third week. And what you're going to see happen next is Paul and this new guy named Luke. He's a Greek guy. He's a doctor. Sure sounds like Paul needs a traveling doctor. They're going to take off, and he's like, I'm going to go throughout the whole Roman Empire and take the word. And so we're going to take off on a travelogue trip through all that Mediterranean world with Paul and Luke. We're going to go to the cities they went to. We're going to look at what happened. You won't believe what God does and all the interesting things that happen. Great lessons for us. So get your passports, get your traveling shoes on. In three weeks, we take off for the Mediterranean with Paul and Luke. Thanks, guys.